for hundreds of years, God patiently sent his prophets to warn the two houses of Israel to repent. Their refusal to do so led to captivity for each house. For the house of Judah, the wicked reign of one king was blamed as one of the primary reasons for Judah's captivity. Who was he? And what did he do that was so wicked? Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 24 and verse 1. We'll start there. 2 Kings 24, starting in verse 1. And so we read about this captivity through Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him, him bands of the Chaldees, bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites, bands of the children of Ammon, and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants to prophets. He had warned them. They didn't listen. Verse 3, Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did. And also, notice, for all the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Would not pardon. Not only was there an entire tribe by the name of Manasseh in the house of Israel, but one of the kings of Judah was named Manasseh as well. And years later, Jeremiah confirms this conviction. He says, I will cause him to be removed, the people of the house of Judah, into all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did to Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jews are still scattered. It's known as the Diaspora. This split sermon will describe the reign of King Manasseh of Judah based on the detail provided in the Hebrew Bible. But be prepared for a surprise near the end. This is the next in my ongoing biographical sermon series. The title of this sermon is The Prodigal King. The Prodigal King. Let's go back to 2 Kings 20, verses 20 and 21. We need to back up a bit and look at, just very briefly, the reign of his father, King Hezekiah. 2 Kings 20, verse 21. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, how he made a pool and a conduit, brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his stead. Just to summarize some things of King Hezekiah's reign, he was the twelfth king of Judah. He was son of an apostate father in King Ahaz, and he took over at about the age of 25. And he was one of the three most righteous kings of Judah. His first act was to purge his land of idolatry, repair and reopen the temple with required sacrifices. He destroyed the bronze serpent 
the one from the time of Moses to which the Israelites looked uh, for healing when they were bitten by snakes, but which the people in his era had turned into an idol called Nehushtan. His country was in a sad state when he took over, economically weak, politically dominated by the growing power of Assyria, and it was religiously corrupt. So upon becoming king, he had the bold task of strengthening the nation's economy, overthrowing the Assyrian domination, and reforming Judah's religion. And that latter achievement won him praise as being one of Judah's greatest kings to that point. And he began his reforms by assembling the priests and the Levites and telling them plainly that the neglect of the temple of God and its services was the reason for God's anger on Judah. They needed to cleanse it, rededicate it. And the common people responded so enthusiastically. They brought so many offerings that they had to tell them, slow down, we can't handle them all. And after this, Hezekiah arranged a great Passover Days of unleavened bread, and after he required them to cleanse themselves and remove all false religion from the land. And then he didn't stop there. He started to move this cleansing process into the territory of the former house of Israel, the remnants of those who have been left from captivity, people of Ephraim and Manasseh as well as those of Judah and Benjamin. And so the nation as a whole was invited to come back to God, those who were still there. And the people responded with tithes and offerings. He reestablished the Sabbath, the holy days, tithing, and the people responded. He faced four crises in his life. He had to choose to forsake the idols of his wicked father and serve the one true God. And he purged the kingdom from idolatry. His second crisis was an invasion from Assyria. And they sent him a threatening letter through the general of the Assyrian army. And Hezekiah laid that letter out before God in prayer. And God delivered them by killing 185,000 Assyrians through the angel of the Lord. And then Hezekiah faced the crisis of his sickness. He was told by Isaiah the prophet, get your house in order for you will surely die. And he appealed to God and prayed for mercy. And God worked a miracle extending his life 15 years. But in those 15 years, he also manifested pride and displayed his treasures to the ungodly. During those extended 15 years, he made three mistakes. He showed his palace and temple treasures to the Babylonian ambassadors while he was seeking an ally against Assyria. And when the time came for the house of Judah to go into captivity, those Babylonians knew exactly where all these treasures were. His second mistake was his arrogance. We read that Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was lifted up with pride. And there was wrath upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But he repents again, and God said, all right, it won't happen in your reign. And Hezekiah strangely said, well, I'm glad that at least it won't happen in my era. It'll happen in my children's era. His third big mistake 
was that he gave, he begat a son who was Manasseh. King Manasseh, the same one we just read, was largely responsible for the collapse of the house of Judah. So let's go to 2 Kings 21.1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. Manasseh reigns in a co-regency with his father for about 10 years, from about 697 to 687 B.C. And then he reigns the rest of his term in a sole rulership, 687, about 643. His name means forgetting. Maybe Hezekiah named him because he was forgetting some of the troubles he had recently faced to that point. It's a sad name because of what how Manasseh turns out. His name, Manasseh, is one of the few royal names not compounded with the name of Yahweh. See, Hezekiah, Yah on the end was that abbreviation for Yahweh. But Manasseh didn't have any abbreviation in his name to connecting him to the one true God. Nor does his son Ammon, the only other one, showing us there's something changing here again. So Manasseh is born about a third year into Hezekiah's extension of life of 15 years. God had promised this extension and by that had preserved the Davidic line. Without that miracle, the Davidic line could have come to an end. But it continues through Manasseh. Fifty-five years Manasseh will reign, the longest in Jewish history. Rabbinic literature says his mother was Isaiah's daughter. We don't know that for sure, but that's their tradition. Verse 2, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Here he had a godly father, and yet he turns out bad. Isn't that tragic? He turns to idolatry, to the heathen worship. His 55-year reign is the longest of any of the Old Testament kings. But unlike his godly father Hezekiah, he reproduced the wickedness of his grandfather Ahaz. He emulated Ahaz's spiritual evil by bringing pagan altars into various places right within God's temple. Placing the Asherah symbol the Canaanite goddess, right in the temple itself, as we will see. This hardly describes the depths of his apostasy. He became a loyal vessel, vassal of the Assyrian Empire, King Ashurbanipal. He became a king who apparently, according to the historical records, provided troops for Ashurbanipal's expedition against the Egyptians. And these vassals who submitted to Assyria, were to worship the Assyrian great god Asher, the chief Assyrian god. And so his acceptance of the Assyrian deities evolved to the point where he worshipped all kinds of pagan deities. Verse 3, he built up again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He reared up altars for Baal, made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel, worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He's worshiping Asherah. An Asherah pole uh, was a wooden, upright 
pole that represented this goddess. You can go online on the Internet and search for that Asherah pole, and you'll see images of it from historical records. And the groves, these Asherim, and the goddess was worshipped with rites similar to those of Baal worship. This goes all the way back to the time of the judges, this worship of Asherah, and it was a mixture of sex and religion. And he worships the host of heaven, never before done in Judah. Astrology enters into this, this pantheon. In verse 5, he built, well, verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, will I put my name? Pagan altars. Five, he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Verse 6, talk about appalling evil. Made his son pass through the fire. That was to give his son. Usually the god Molech required the firstborn son. And you can go online and see an image of Molech as well. And uh, these children were given to him and burned alive. That's how evil that religious practice was. And Manasseh gave that boy, may have been his firstborn son, but not only his one child, as we will see later in another account. And then it says he observed times, watching the clouds, that is practicing soothsaying, using enchantments, a form of spiritism, black magic, witchcraft. And in wizards, he brought in familiar spirits, those who were dealing with the uh, wicked spirits having seances and welcoming these spiritists, as well as these wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord and brought to provoke him to anger. He did every evil he could concoct to deny and defy the God of his father, Hezekiah, bringing in fortune tellers and all kinds of evils never before seen. They really sank to a new low under King Manasseh. In verse 7, he set up a graven image of the grove that he made in a house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, in this house, in the temple, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, of all the tribes of Israel, while I put my name forever. God said there's to be centralized worship. He was to be worshipped in this one temple, instead of wandering with the tribes from place to place. In verse 8, Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they observe to do according to all I have commanded them and according to all the law which my servant Moses commanded them. He says, God says to Israel, you can stay protected in your land as long as you worship the one true God here in the central shrine, the central place of worship. But if you don't, if you push me out, you will be expelled from the land. That was the condition. And so the Asherah, apparently, as we read from archaeology now, it had gotten to the point where Yahweh, the God of Israel, is lined up with Asherah as his consort, kind of a companion or spouse. Well, this was common in pagan worship, 
And now they're doing it for the one true God. But they hearkened not, verse 9, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Imagine, worse than the Gentiles. Do we understand now why God sent them into captivity? And the Lord spoke by his servants of prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations and done wickedly above all the Amorites, did which were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the eternal God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil or calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. As an emotional response, God said he sent his prophets to warn them. Manasseh's policies included idolatry, immorality and religious worship, persecution of the righteous, as we will soon see, and destruction of the things associated with the true God. But these prophets came to teach the law of God, to remind people of their duty, to direct them the right way, to reprove them when they turned to sin, and if they didn't, to foretell the time of judgment. And so these prophets became judges. And so men like Isaiah and Nahum from this era may have been among those hardy souls who spoke up against this evil. But they did not listen. And so God said, calamity will come upon you. The word Amorites here, they were one of the seven nations of Canaan. But here seems to be a collective term for all the original Canaanite peoples. He says, this captivity will be so bad that your ears will tingle. You will have an emotional reaction to hearing such momentous news. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, verse 13, the line of Samaria, the plummet of the house of Ahab. I'll wipe Jerusalem as a man wipes a dish, wiping it, turning it upside down. And he uses here an analogy of the plummet, the surveyor's, Weighted line suspended from the top to see if that is straight uh, vertically in the line to see if something is properly measured horizontally. And he says the same standard that fell upon the house of Israel will come upon you. Samaria, the capital of the house of Israel, will fall also on Jerusalem, the capital of the house of Judah. It will be like a man wiping a dish. And putting it upside down. Our ladies here will not fail to notice that it says it was a man who washed the dish and put it upside down. Verse 14. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them to the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil or plunder to all their enemies because they have done that which is evil in my sight and provoke me to anger. Since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the eternal. Innocent blood. Who among them? Well, Josephus tells us. Manasseh slew all the righteous, God-fearing people, 
and prophets of God day by day so that Jerusalem flowed with blood. God's people. He persecutes them. You see, this is a deeper systemic problem than just one man. This goes back for generations. And Jewish and Christian tradition says among them was God's prophet Isaiah. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about God's righteous being sawn in half. And that's the tradition that Isaiah was sawn in half. And so we read now in verse 18, verse 17, The rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, his sin which he sinned, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he slept with his fathers, that is, he died, and he was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his stead. He was not buried in the sepulchres of the kings. There's no record of any kings of Judah after Ahaz being buried in the sepulchres of the kings with high honor. And Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. We'll look some more about him later. But I want to go to a companion account. Let's go to Second Chronicles 33. Second Chronicles 33. And you have to understand that Chronicles is written from the point of view of the priesthood, of the temple, and of the throne of David. And in this account, we're going to learn a few more details. Second Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. Verse 2, but he did that which was evil in the sight of eternal, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He built again the high places. These were the pagan altars, often on hills throughout the land that people would gather to to worship idols. And at that point began to worship Yahweh as well. You know, they accepted all gods on these hillsides as well as uh, all the holy, uh, the high places that Hezekiah's father had broken down. He built them back up. He reared up, reared up altars for Baalim and made groves and worshipped all the hosts of heaven. He built altars in the house of the eternal, wherever the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. Can you imagine how appalling this was to the Almighty? And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in two courts in the house of the eternal right there in the outer precincts of God's own temple, to worship the host of heaven. And then verse 6, I want you to notice, Manasseh caused his children, plural, to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Heman. Also he observed times, used enchantments, used witchcraft, dealt with a familiar spirit, kind of like a ventriloquist, the human being that would speak for the wicked spirit and wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the eternal. So here we have a king who's gone to the depths of idolatry, pagan worship, offering not just one of his own children in sacrifice to Molech, but others as well. 
It turns our stomach when we think about this. Enchantments and divinations, familiar spirits where the devils are supposed to be in or under the power of a man. Worse than the heathen we're about to read, as we already have in Second Kings. But his children, can you imagine, all of us who are parents and grandparents, how that must have been, how appalling that was. And so we read now, he has a carved image in verse 7. He set up a carved image. Some commentators like the Jewish Targum suggest that was an image of himself. If not, then again it was the Asherah, the idol which he made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon and to his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. The condition for their staying in the land was faithfulness to the Almighty in Jerusalem. So, verse 9, Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err to do worse than the heathen, whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. We thought the Canaanites were bad. Nothing compared to King Manasseh of Judah. Apostasy knows no ends, it seems. Radio newsman and commentator, the late Paul Harvey, used to produce an afternoon show called The Rest of the Story. Now let's read the rest of the story about King Manasseh. So Manasseh made Judah to do worse. And now verse 10, 2 Chronicles 33, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, Either the thorns were the place that's kind of like a thicket where he's hiding out trying to escape, or else, as the margins of some Bibles today suggest, these Assyrians would hook captives to haul them back to Assyria through their lips. Let's see, where's my note? Quick. Verse 11, yes, among the the thorns, through their noses or through their lips. You're not going to try to run when you've got a hook in your nose or your lips. Early form of pierced body piercing, I guess. That's how they haul people back. Manasseh was among these thorns or bound in chains with fetters, these a bronze shackles, verse 11, and carried him to Babylon, verse 12. And then verse, yes, in verse 12, but when he was in affliction, 
He besought the eternal as God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Does that sound like any other story of the Bible you can remember? Someone who got into such abject trouble, who was in such a helpless state, it finally brought him to repentance. And he turns to the Almighty. Yeah, just like the prodigal son. He came to himself in a foreign land and repented. Will God accept it? Let's see. He besought, that is, he appealed to the Almighty. He humbles himself. Here he is sitting in prison. He turns to God and he prays to him, verse 13. And God was entreated of him. God heard him, heard his supplication, brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew the eternal was God. God not only graciously forgave this king, but restored him back to his throne in Jerusalem, hundreds of miles from his captivity. It's a remarkable story. And this is the part that Second Kings did not give us. This is the rest of the story. So let's go on now. He will reign only a few more years. And so he makes you wonder, what influence will he have on his society now that he's a repentant man? So after this, verse 14, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering of the fish gate, compassed about Ophel and raised up a very great height and put captains of war in all the fortified cities. So he's rebuilding his military. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the eternal and all the altars which they had built in the house, the mount of the house of eternal and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the eternal, sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. He humbles himself greatly. How far will his reforms go? Nevertheless, verse 17, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet to the Lord their God only. (laughs) They continued to worship at these pagan altars, but now they say, we'll just worship God here instead of back in the central temple where they belonged. So the reforms go so far, but not quite far enough. so verse 18, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spake to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. So this one refers to the book of kings. The other one refers to the book of chronicles. And these both are part of our canon today. Verse 19, his prayer also. And how God was entreated of him and all his sin and his trespass in places where he built high places and set up groves and graven images before he was humble. Behold, they are written among the sayings of the seers. Now, there is a prayer of Manasseh 
that has been found, became part of Jewish Apocrypha. And I have a copy of it here. You can find this on a number of sites and Bible reference works. But even the Church of Rome did not accept this apocryphal work into their Bible canon. But when you read this prayer of Manasseh, it certainly sounds like his words. But most scholars claim that this came much later. But he did have a special prayer, his prayer also, verse 19. How God was entreated of him in all his sins and his trespass, setting up groves and graven images before he was humbled. Behold, they are written in the sayings of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, verse 20, and they buried him in his own house. And Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. All right, now let's see. What influence might Manasseh and his repentance have had upon the next king, his own son Ammon? Verse 21. Ammon was two and twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh, his father. Talk about a flip-flop. We go from king to king. They're just alternating between good and bad, it seems. And Ammon had sacrificed to all the carved images which Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. He humbled not himself before the eternal, as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. Just like Manasseh had rebelled against his own father and his cleansing of the land and his faithfulness to the Almighty, now Ammon rebels against his father and takes the land right back into its apostate state, refused to humble himself, trespassed more and more. But it's the conditions of going back and forth. You've got two camps now at odds threatening each other, probably killing each other, pro-Assyrian, anti-Assyrian. Talk about division. We're seeing this in our own time. They had it in the time of Ammon, too. To the point, verse 24, his servants conspired against him and slew him in his own house. Assassination. But the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against King Ammon. So the people respond, and they kill the killers. More bloodshed. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his stead. That Josiah is Manasseh's grandson. What kind of king will he turn out to be? I mean, Manasseh left a son who followed his father in sin, but not into Manasseh's later repentance. But what about King Josiah? I mean, Ammon went right back and brought out all the idols that Manasseh had thrown out of the city, brought them back in and restored all the pagan worship. You see back in verse 15, all Manasseh did, he made a mistake. He just dumped all these idols outside the city, and Ammon brings them back. You see, the law of Moses said they were to have been burned. So there was no trace of them left. There were too many vestiges of paganism left behind. 
And so now we come to Josiah. How will he turn out with all this flip-flopping back and forth, good evil, good influence, bad influence, the people of the land divided among themselves, going in different directions, not knowing what was going to happen next. Josiah is the 15th king of Judah, and he becomes a king when he's just a boy. Let's go to chapter 34. Verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem one in 30 years. I refer you to a sermon I gave on King Josiah here a few years ago called The Young Reformer. And uh, William Williams helped me turn that sermon into an article in the Living Church News. This is where that story picks up, the story of Manasseh. So how, sorry, the story of Josiah. How does he turn out? Josiah. See, he's got Yah, the shortened version of Yahweh, in his name. Verse 2, chapter 34. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in all the ways of David his father, declined neither to the right hand nor the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, he's 16 years old. While he's yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And he, too, down in verse 6, invites the remnants of Manasseh and Ephraim, Simeon and Naphtali to come and worship the one true God. And he has a massive reform that truly cleanses the land. But the rest of the story for King Josiah, he has a very tragic end. I'll refer you back to my other sermon. I won't go back into it now. But Manasseh, if he was still alive, could have had some hope. His son turned out bad, but his grandson was the next best king after King Hezekiah. Manasseh did influence his people for evil. And so Ammon gathered all those who still believed in this pagan worship and restored that in his own time. But Manasseh's grandson reversed it, turned back to the Almighty, restored the true worship. So what, what lessons can we learn from these stories of the kings of Judah? I've got three primary lessons. One, a God-fearing parent like Hezekiah does not always produce righteous children. Look how bad Manasseh was in his early part of his life. But after his repentance, Manasseh's son Ammon turned wicked as well. A God-fearing parent does not always produce righteous children because we all have that human nature, the nature of Satan to deal with, and those children have to make a choice. They have to learn to choose the one true God, the God who is chosen by their parents for themselves. And so when we read of a failure of a son coming from a godly parent, something went wrong. Manasseh must not have had 
a very good upbringing, even though his father was godly. Something went wrong in his child-rearing days, his young life. But when he became a teenager, he rebelled regardless, and he went all the way to the other extreme. How sad that is. And we hear of stories like that even yet today, tragically. That's one lesson. A second lesson, the magnitude of God's grace, that even such a wicked person as Manasseh could repent and be forgiven. God's love and grace and mercy are big enough for any sinner. Even the most evil people have the potential to repent if the heart is right. But, lesson three, sin provokes God to anger. When we read in 2 Kings 21 that he made his children to pass through the fire, it says that provoked God to anger. A time comes when God stops speaking through his prophets and he starts punishing with action. Someone who influences others to do wrong may discover that the extent, they may discover the extent of their sin makes it impossible to undo their previous bad example with a later good one. Followers of the bad example are so determined to carry on in that way. While any sin can be forgiven when we repent, God's forgiveness does not necessarily remove the natural consequences flowing from disobeying God's law. Does not naturally necessarily remove the natural consequences flowing from past disobedience. Confessed sins are forgiven, but the consequences of disobeying God may live on long after repentance. I'm sure Manasseh regretted all he had done for the rest of his life. But he couldn't prevent it from happening through his own son. As we read at the beginning of the sermon, also for the innocent blood that Manasseh shed in filling the Jerusalem with innocent blood, the Lord would not pardon the land for that sin. And that led to their captivity. You know, in the book of Luke, we read that the elect cry out to God day and night. And the Lord, it says, will avenge his elect speedily, though he bears long with them. The nations of our world have a day of reckoning coming for shedding innocent blood in their lands, including the blood of of innocent babies killed in the womb, and also the execution of defenseless, God-fearing people. Have you been reading about the persecution and executions of professing Christians around the world, how it's increasing? We hardly have this reported, it seems, in our news here, but it's going on and it's increasing. And persecutors don't care what denomination of Christianity you belong to. That's happening right now. We have troubled times coming for sure. And someday God's going to give these persecuted justice, including the people of Manasseh's own time, the innocent. You see, this is a serious matter, but we see that God's grace was abundant to this wicked king, worse than all the heathen 
in his repentance. And though God removes us from us our sins, yet long-lasting consequences for our sins may last a lifetime. So that dispenses with any notion that we can live in sin for years, though we know better and expect there will be no consequences. There are. And it was true in the life of Manasseh and Ammon. There is a day of reckoning coming, and God's grace must not be abused, though it's generous beyond our comprehension. So as we draw closer to Passover, let us take seriously our Christian calling and come to hate and renounce sin. For the eternal is merciful and gracious and will abundantly pardon.